once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else fill the wall up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to another exciting episode of the starring Jake and Jeff McClure. There, I said it in my radio voice. I, I, I did everything that you normally want me to do. It was ultra enthusiastic. I included boys and girls, though what they're doing listening to an economic talk well, you, show. You, uh, just, you missed the excitement that I knew. As, as a child. We would gather around a radio, mm-hmm. and it literally said, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to, and then they, the name of the show. Right. Right. So, I mean, I get that, uh, but I, I suspect that the children of today on a Saturday morning are not gathered around, around the radio to listen to two bald bearded men talk about economics. Actually, if it comes to radio, unless we tell them that we're bald bearded men, they don't know that we're bald bearded oh, oh, men. Oh, uh, please um, uh, uh, just go back and remove that from the record. Uh, strike that from the record, please. We are, um, we are young women. Yes. You, uh, no. <laughs> Actually, if you want to see a good image of us, it's the Smith Brothers cough drops. Oh, um, before or after eating? I mean, the, 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 the old Smith Brothers cough, cough drops. Uh, and what was it? Trademark. See, you're still Pictures dating yourself. Bearded. Talking about gathering around a myself. radio. I have a perfectly good wife that I date. Yes, okay. She's dating you as well. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Um, yes. She does date me. Uh, so I've been married the, to her for 52 years, so that dates me. Yes. Those of you who don't know, the guy who just spoke about being married 52 years is my dad, Elder Baldy and Younger Baldy. We've been in business together for, oh my goodness, 31 years. And, and yeah. neither of us are insane. In, insane. In, insane. Oh, sorry. Um, we're, we're perfectly normal, I tell you. Perfectly normal. 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 Okay. All right. Um, we are here not to talk about our own mental health, though that might be pertinent into, uh, information at some point. We are rather here to talk about the dreary science, the dismal science of economics, as well as personal finance and some concepts of what to do in investing and all that. But before we get started on that, we have to disclose. Uh, and I'm going to try to say our disclosures relatively quickly this time. Let me try it. No, no, it's too hard. I'm going to have to do it slowly. Um, The Personal Wealth Coach is not just the name of this podcast and or radio program. It's also the name of a firm, same firm that we're the two principals of, these hosts and principals. It's like we have dual personalities or something. Wait, no more mental health. Sorry, we'll get to that later. Um, what, What I'm saying here is that the Personal Wealth Coach is also a firm, and it's a firm that's registered with the SEC to give fiduciary investment advice. Um... But we can't do that on the air because fiduciary investment advice requires us to know all of you and then to be private about the advice that we're giving to all of you, which makes that impossible. So instead, we're giving you education, hopefully, maybe some entertainment and probably a lot of frustration and groaning over our attempts at entertaining. Um, so that being said, just because it's registered with the SEC, our firm, doesn't mean that they think we're any kind of better than anybody else. In fact, I think their general opinion of most people registered with them is what's wrong with you and we will find it. Um, So all that's saying is they haven't given us our approval just because we're registered with them. They're just the ones that regulate us. Next up, we don't pay for this program. 
So I just told you that we run a for-profit business and we're required to tell you about it. And it's actually the same name as the program, but we don't pay for this program and we don't get paid to do the program. This is a partnership we've been in with KTEM since 1996, over how many owners have they had during that time period? Three, I don't four? even like to think of it. Well, I'm different studios now than they had. They we actually, KTEM had its own studio oh, building. Yeah. When big, we started. big building. It had two big, and now we're not even in this studio. We're, we're coming remotely to it. Uh, so all we're saying there is that we do advertise on KTEM, but all of our advertisement is for this program. And they advertise on their uh, station as well for this program. So it's the same partnership we've had for a very long time. And um, so you want to do the next disclosure? Do you deem it worthy? I, I so deem. The information we present on this educational radio program, not investment advice, has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable. But we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. You like that? That was cool. And we absolutely don't guarantee the completeness of unsaid information. There. Well, I think it's completely unsaid. Then it's completely incomplete. Right. Right. We guarantee it. We're silly. Yes, we're, we are. We're weird. But the important thing to recognize, and this is something strategically that I think all investors should be aware of. If, and it's, if you are dependent upon a portfolio of bonds in a rising interest rate environment, you need to be looking, you need to be very, very astute and very carefully looking. Because if you bought those bonds in the not too distant past, you probably bought them at a premium and didn't know it. I mean, and, and a lot of people are invested in bonds that don't know they're invested in bonds. That makes it more interesting. For instance, if you have an annuity, you bought a fixed annuity, not a variable annuity, a fixed annuity. And they say, we guarantee we'll pay you this much money for the rest of your life once you start the payments or whatever they promise or whatever interest rate they promise. Here's the problem with that. They're making those assumptions based on the, the recent relatively, typically 30 years of history. They look at it and say, here's what happened. So we'll make this promise. If interest rates continue up and the bond portfolios continue down, and let's, I'm going to use a, a rough, a very rough estimate here. Let's just say that you bought the annuity because they promised you a 3% return. We'll give you a 3% return. And it, when interest rates are below 1%, that sounded tremendous. What happens if interest rates continue up and inflation continues high, so the Federal Reserve continues to push interest rates up, and interest rates go to, let's just say, 4.5% on midterm bonds? You're getting 3 You could liquidate your annuity and go get 45 A lot of people are going to do that. That's what happened in the very late 70s and early 80s. A lot of people are going to do that. And when they do... They basically say to the annuity company, give me my money back. I'm going to go invest it somewhere else. Now, a lot of times there's a surrender charge on it because you bought it through a, an insurance agent who got a big commission, and that basically is the surrender charge. So the surrender charge, if you look at the loss on the surrender charge plus the interest you might get in the future, you might decide to shift. And if you did, and a lot of people do that, they go to the insurance companies then and say, give me my money. Well, the, mar the bond market, the bond values in the portfolio are down. So the insurance company has to start liquidating at, an, at a loss. And I I'm saying this happened in the late 70s and early 80s, and insurance companies started folding up. And there is no FDIC for insurance companies. There are state guarantee funds that sometimes translate into benefits to people from other states and sometimes don't. It's a, it's a fluid situation, but there is a significant risk there 
that I think people have been unaware of for a long time because they say it's guaranteed. And I've seen a lot of articles saying what a wonderful thing it is to put annuities in your retirement account. And let's you, you get this guaranteed. Well, who guarantees it? Well, one company guarantees it, whatever company you bought it from. If that company goes under, you are an unsecured creditor. And I'm going to give you some a couple of worst case situations, but they are they happened. They're real. Executive life of California, uh, executive life of New York, uh, Monarch, and a series of other companies failed during the late 70s and early 80s when interest rates were going up to fight inflation. And in many cases, and I don't have statistics on this, but I know that I encountered people who got back 33 cents on the dollar, and they were very unhappy. Some people who got back 50 cents on the dollar, and they were very unhappy. They came to me and they said, I lost all this money. Now, that's a very probably a very poor sampling statistically, because obviously if people were doing really, really well, they didn't come to the broker and say, I don't like what happened to me and I want to move my money. But just be aware that what seems like a risk-free investment in many cases isn't. And you have to examine it. Let me give you quickly another example and we move on. Okay. Right now you might be tempted to look at certain bond funds that are offering very high interest rates or bonds. Let me give you an example. Dollar-denominated bonds that that are collateralized by real estate in China, I just read, are offering 32% interest rates. Uh, Why? (laughs) Higher interest rates than Treasury, than the Treasury is offering at any given point, involves higher risk. And it goes up, the risk goes up exponentially with the interest rate on the bonds. So if somebody offers you a higher interest rate than you can get out of a treasury bond or a treasury note or a certificate of deposit at the bank, there is a risk involved. And it's not that you should necessarily avoid all risk because that's how you get return is to take certain risks. The issue is to understand the risk and say that risk is significant to me and liable to hit me between the eyes or it's not. And that's very, very important when people offer you a higher interest rate and a promise on a higher interest rate than you can get from a safe position, a truly safe position. I just right. wanted to say that. Thank you. Two, two fantastic questions. Thank you, John. Inquisitor John, our most faithful questioner, um, has two questions. One, this, this is the subject spending investing behavior. Um, the question is, despite inflation, shortages, fewer choices, and a host of other life negatives, sp- spending seems through the roof. How much of this do you contribute to having COVID and masking in the rearview mirror and most of us out of quarantine jail after two years? Um, lots of it. That's a big chunk of it. Um, this is that, Let me kind of rewind and go back to the beginning of the question. This is hopefully is a, is a quick answer. And then we go on to the one that I really want to answer. Um, it's you're, the beginning of the question is despite inflation shortages, fewer choices, and a host of, of other life negatives. Let's put some of those in there. The invasion of Ukraine, making more shortages, making, uh, more fewer choices. All of that can be given one label. That is inflation. All of that. We're at, a, a, a and, when you say, despite inflation, spending is through the roof, that's also inflation. Inflation causes spending to go up with inflation. That's what inflation is. When we have spending above inflation, which is what he's asking about, what John's asking about, there's more spending than the inflated amount would project. 
that also contributes to inflation, especially when you have shortage. We also have absolute full employment. Add that together. You've got people leaving one job to go to another job to get a higher pay. So they're getting more pay. What do they do with that excess money? Well, they spend it. Uh, on top of that, what you say, you know, how much of this is coming out of quarantine jail? A big chunk of it. You put all these factors together. There's an article in the Wall Street Journal um, that that's this is the headline. Older Americans flush with housing and stock portfolio wealth poised to revive spending this year. This was from a week ago. Uh, it's all the same stuff. We're doing really well. It's really hard to find someone or large groups of someones that are doing a lot worse today than they were pre-pandemic. There are people out there, don't get me wrong, but they're becoming rarer and rarer. In fact, the vast majority of people have significantly improved their standard of living, their income above inflation during that time period. We have not quite regained all of the employment we lost. So how can we be at this full employment level? Because a lot of people have retired during that time period and the stock market has done extremely well. So they feel good about spending. All of that is the same category. It's all shortages and extra money. And that leads to inflation. Now, is that forever? Are we locked into this forever? No, because the contracts and employment that were around in the 1970s, there are a lot fewer of them that last 10, 20, 15, 30 years. That's, we used to have union contracts that were the majority of industry that locked in raises five years in advance based on what the inflation rate was today. Well, that means it's really hard to make that kind of inflation temporary if you've got contracts that say I'm going to continue inflation into the future. Uh, that's the point, is that we're going to have more inflation specifically because of the war, but we were having it because we had a lot of money on hand and there were shortages because of supply chain issues. So all of it is a mix, and, and we could spend a lot of time on that. I think we spent a lot of time last week on that particular subject. This next question that you asked, though, can really be broken apart into two pieces. Do you have the, the email as well? Yeah, okay. and I have the article. Okay. So I'm going to focus in on a subset of the question, which is the cost for trading. But I think you should focus in on what the article, its whole purpose is about. So I'm going to jump in and, and this, is, this, this segment could even be called, how can they afford to charge no commission? How can you have a, a free trade in the stock market? And uh, John has sent in, as, as is tradition, uh, a digital picture of the paper Wall Street Journal in the email with uh, ink circling around it. I love the, the hybrid of digital and analog that's going on in this. This is good tradition. The, the article is about um, value investing is back, but for how long? And that's what I want Elder Baldy Jeff to talk about in a minute. But the question on the article has a, a section circle. Can you explain this, please? And the subject is trade fees, mid-cap trade fees, or trade fees in general. Um, this, is, this is the section. It, it's talking about payment for order flow and how it is that some companies don't charge you a commission for making a trade. 
Robin Hood is the is the kind of um, front runner on this. They're the ones that pioneered this concept. And what does it mean? Well, Robin Hood doesn't sit on the exchange. What does that mean? It means that they're not really in the market. They have to go through someone that sits on the exchange to trade on the exchange. So they say, hey, would you buy this many shares for Robert of this company? And would you buy that many shares? So the same thing you're telling Robinhood, they have to tell somebody else to get stocks purchased. Or they can go to somebody else that already has the stock, that they know already has the stock, and buy it from them. Those people are called market makers so because they just buy the stock so that they can sell it when people want to buy it. They're not really in it for anything except to make the market run well. And they get paid to do that. So Robinhood gets paid when you make a trade, even though there's no commission. Well, how did that happen? Well, they take bids from market makers. And some companies make markets in a lot of different stocks. So they take bids from market makers to say, who of you wants to handle this trade for us? Who of you wants to make the sell or make the buy for us. And these other companies offer Robinhood money for that. Well, wait a minute. I thought this was free. Where are they getting the money to offer Robinhood? They're paying to do the trade for free? What? Here's what happens. We've talked about this quite a lot over the last several years. The people that can make trades in millionths of a second are these people, these market makers. And when you give them an order to sell, or to buy, they can do it just ahead of you. It's called front running. And it's okay because they're making the market and that's how they're getting paid. They, they make fractional pennies per trade, but they do a lot of trade. And sometimes they make more than fractional pennies a trade. Sometimes they're making whole pennies and sometimes they're making whole dollars depending on how big the trades are and how expensive the stock is. So, all of this comes back to what the, this is the part that he's got circled. Critics contend the practice poses a conflict of interest for brokers because it encourages them to collect more money rather than to pass the savings on to the customers. The SEC is looking directly at this, by the way. Um, there is something, there's already rules on that. There are rules called best execution. And I wish it was about taking someone out back with the with the 22, but that's that's not the kind of execution that's... As a trading company, they're required to find the best price possible for their clients and the best timing possible as quickly as they can. That's what best execution means. And Robinhood's already been fined lots of money, anyone can look that up, for failure on best execution. They're just making more money <laughs> than the fines on it. So, uh, and they have to comply with the SEC or they can get shut down, but they're finding ways of doing it. And, and you have something to add here. Yeah, the article that you see the headline on is not the one he was asking the question from. That's, that's why I was like, you, you get to handle that one. That one's a good one. I'm trying oh, to complete the, a segment on order flow though. Do you want to do well, that? Order flow, is a, it was a different article that he sent the question on. Uh, did you and and a, and a okay. big piece of that is if you make an order through Robinhood or someplace, your order may or may not be executed as an order. Correct. Probably won't be. What happens is Robinhood then sells that order to a third party, and the third party consolidates all the orders. Now, why does that work? Because a lot of the trading on Robinhood is 
a lot of people making the same orders at about the same time. And very, there's a lot of surging going right, on. Very small amounts of stocks. It's cheaper right. to buy or sell in large baskets of stocks. And so what happens is the trade doesn't go through the stock exchange. They can make the, the third party that, that the orders are sold to can look at the fact there's a lot of people buying and a lot of people selling the same stock at the same moment because of Reddit or whatever, and they've all decided to make the same move at the same time. They can do the trade internally and effectively become a market maker for the stock, and there's a spread between the buy and the sell. And so the third party gets to keep the difference between the buy and the sell price, and they pay a little bit of it back to Robinhood, uh, Robin and that's where Robinhood makes money. A couple of problems with that. One, obviously, that is they're making money and, and they're actually charging you when they tell you there's no commission. In fact, there is a spread which constitutes a commission and it is being charged to you and you are paying for it. You just don't see it. It's an invisible commission. The second issue is as this huge volume of trading goes on off the stock exchange in a relatively unregulated environment, it's dangerous to the entire exchange system. The New York Stock Exchange is highly regulated, highly monitored. Insider trading gets spotted in advance, or not advance, but following, and the SEC follows up on it, and lots of good things happen that keep the markets relatively stable and relatively fair. As soon as a large volume of trade starts to occur from small investors off the stock market, that's hard it to track. invisible, it becomes dark trading, and there can be insider trading going on and cheating going on and lots of things going on. And the SEC won't be able to see it happening. And a lot of people could and probably already have been hurt by that. It hurt severely. And you're just blissfully unaware that the reason they lost a lot of money on that trade where they bought something high and then it crashed and then they sold it and lost a lot of money may very well be because Robinhood and other similar quote free brokers traded off the exchange and then we're running out we need to do commercials yeah. hey one that that is a that is a critical issue and man there's nothing i can do about it but i i think it's there's something wrong with the, it the sec's already looking at it they're already saying hey we need to have some very clear rules on this um and that's that that is our takeaway from it the critics are absolutely right on this when there's no limit to the commission and you, you don't get to know about it, uh, the spread on the bid and the ask, uh, that's always existed. I will sell it for this. Oh yeah, we'll all buy it for that. That's always there. So that spread, if you're the market maker and you already own the stock, you get to make that difference. Most of the stock purchase and sale on Robinhood is done with, at what's called market. They don't say, I want to buy it at this price. They just say, I want to buy it. They don't say, I want to sell it at this price. They just say, I want to sell it. And that gives a market maker a great deal of possible leeway and how much money they get to make in profit on that deal. And on to probably, I'm guessing, this might be one of your favorite subjects. Are you investing? Yeah. Well, let me finish off that last thing. Robinhood offering free trades earned $974 million in commissions Whoa. with no commissions Wow, last year. That's a really impressive thing. I wish I could get paid for not getting paid. Um, in, in fact, the no commission trades generated a combined $3.8 billion to the, to the 12 largest brokerage 
firms that are offering free trades. So if you think you're doing a free trade, think again, $3.8 billion is a lot of commissions, uh, supposedly free trades. Uh, and $1 billion of that was earned by Robinhood uh, offering free trades, which I think is really pretty fascinating. Um, Charles Schwab earned $1.7 billion. Uh, TD Ameritrade is part of Charles Schwab. Now, anyway, we went on to value investing, and the question is how long? Growth investing, betting on higher earnings in the future, is in many ways uh, oriented on interest rates. Why? Because a lot of the companies that are doing really fast growth, and those are the ones with the really highest stock prices relative to their earnings, are making this fast growth by borrowing a lot of money. And as they borrow a lot of money, if they're borrowing at an interest rate, which is what we've seen historically over the last several years, below future inflation rates, in effect, it doesn't cost them anything to borrow the money. They're actually making money by borrowing money, and then they go and buy something with it, and then they borrow more money, and they buy something else with it. And they expand what they're doing. And it, theoretically, that would cause their earnings to rise at some point in the future. And it sounds really, really. And people tend to run up those stocks because they are making great strides in some direction. Tesla is probably a prime example, making straight great strides in some direction by borrowing a tremendous amount of money at very, very low interest rates. Eventually, that runs out. It always has run out historically. Sometimes it takes decades to run out, but it runs out. On the other side of the ledger, if you will, are the value investors. And I like the article here that says basically uh, value investors are long-term and they've had to be because the last decade or so it's been terrible. It has. Value has underperformed growth for the last decade or so. Why? Because interest rates have been astonishingly low. And the end result is that value investors, and Warren Buffett is the, probably the best known one in this century, like to buy companies after looking or buy stock in companies after looking at the company and say, this company is worth more than that. So we're going to buy at a low, relatively low price because we think eventually the free enterprise market system that we have will recognize that this company is worth more than it is currently selling for on the stock exchange. And, and so the value on the stock exchange of a company is, is the value of one stock times the number of stocks, shares that are outstanding. And when somebody like Warren Buffett looks at a company and sees that number, and then they go back and look at the company itself and say, if I were buying that company, just the company, based on the internal revenue streams and value of their property and everything of that company, what would I pay for it? And when Warren Buffett or a value, man, value investment manager looks at that company and says, let me just give round figures here. I would pay $12 billion for that company on the open market. And they look at the value of all the stock of that company on the stock exchange, and it's $10 billion, they say, whoa, I need to start buying that stock. Now, one has to be very careful about that if you're a value investor, because if you buy a lot of stock that's at $10 billion, by definition, the price of the stock will start to go up. Warren Buffett circumvents that problem by buying the whole company, and that makes it more interesting. But that's the difference between a value investor and a growth investor. Now, a lot of investors are in the middle and don't know whether they're value or growth investors. They just buy stuff. But And that's called a blend situation uh, or bland situation is well, the case. Well, maybe. We can get technical. When you blend value and growth together, we, we call that a, a blend. That's very technical, I know. But it's yes, it is. Yes, it is. But the point is... And by the way, we at the Personal Wealth Coach tend to be value investors. Why do we tend to be value investors? Because over the very long term, there's a lot of really good academic studies, and we're geeks, and we like academic studies, and we've been educated a lot. 
that indicate over long-term periods of time, and we're talking about 30 years, value has historically outperformed growth. And if you're a long-term investor, that's what you're looking for. And by the way, there's very little ability by anybody to forecast when that switch is going to occur one way or the other. It's kind of like market timing. It's very difficult. And so we tend to be value investors. We love value. We also tend to note that mid-cap value companies, historically, according to academic studies, have done better than large cap or, or small cap. Small cap has done very well, but it's pretty volatile and it's a little scary. So we tend to stay away from that. So we tend to focus in that area, and which is why we list the CRSP Mid-Cap Value Index in our newsletter, and we talk about it on the radio. If you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually do this for a living, only we do less macro talk on and the air. more personal. Well, that's the talk on the air part. Uh, telling talk people how to invest. That's, how we, that's right. what we do for a living. And uh, if you'd like to talk to us off the air, our phone number locally is... Nine... 254-947-1111. Or you can get that same line toll-free at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com, uh, where you can see our newsletters going back. Uh, you can sign up for our newsletters. You can listen to our radio programs going back a long way. See what we were saying before. I, I, where were we wrong? Uh, go back and find it. Uh, you can also uh, send us messages there, either through the contact form or directly by email at jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. Uh, we really appreciate you guys listening. Thank you for taking the time on your Saturday morning or whenever you're listening to, to do that. Uh, until next hour, and this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.